Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is going to be our primary text this morning and the entire chapter. We have an ambitious goal this morning uh, to get through this chapter. Uh, as a, This entire series has been kind of heavy, and last week I know was heavy, and there will be portions of this week's message that are heavy. But here's the reason why this is important. It's because we're digging through heavy material. Remember, the whole reason that Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome was to share the gospel message with them. He opened up with that obligation that he had both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. And, and there was a reason because he believed in the power of the gospel. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. And from that standpoint, Paul went on to show the primary need that all of humanity has. He did that from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, where he was declaring the simple message that Jews are sinners and, and Gentiles are sinners and we're all sinners. There's nobody left out of that reality. But Paul gives us this great reality right before he got into the, uh, the most important paragraph at the beginning of that, the great reality where he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so last week we tried to answer the question, how do you know you know? Right? And that, that's something that's important for us to know. How do we know? We know that when we close our eyes for the final time, that we'll open them up in the presence of Christ. This is what we have to grasp. Uh, and so what he did in this passage that we went through last week is, is Paul basically, he preached a message. And in preaching that message, it's the same thing that a preacher does today. You read the text, you explain the text, then you illustrate the text and you apply the text. Well, what we're going to find ourselves in in chapter 4 is a long illustration that Paul's going to use from uh, the life of Abraham. You remember Father Abraham, right? How many people remember singing that song, Father Abraham had many sons? Come on, everybody ready? Let's get up and sing it. Let's get our cardio in this morning. And see how that song will wear you out. You're short of breath by the time uh, you're done with that. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to illustrate what faith is. If we're, if we're saved by faith, then we have to have this understanding of what, what faith is. And Paul points to the life of Abraham as a perfect example. So what is faith? How would you answer that question? Some people would answer that faith is a baptism. Others would answer that faith is a, a confession. Others would answer that faith is obedience to God's word. Some would even answer that faith is what you refrain from in life. Uh, and some even declaring faith is what they have in themselves. So Paul, when he declares this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, what exactly is he declaring? What does he mean for us? What does it mean, mean for us? And so we're going to just attempt to answer those questions uh, this morning from looking at Abraham's life. Do you remember 10th grade biology? Anybody remember 10th grade biology class? So uh, there's a couple things I remember. I, I remember our entire class got caught cheating on a test. 
So <laughs> the uh, teacher left the test out on his, uh, the corner of his, his desk every week, and so we figured that out. And so he would leave the room, and somebody would get up and copy the answers. So I was always smart enough to at least change a couple of the answers because I was never smart enough to get 100 on anything. Uh, so I remember that, but I also remember we got to dissect a few things. The first thing we got to dissect was an earthworm. And the teacher had that overhead projector. You remember what the overhead projector was, right? He sat in front of it, flipped over these transparency sheets and had it up there. And as he was describing what we had cut open, I got to admit to you, I didn't see it. I just saw a bunch of goo. <laughs> so, so, uh, but then our class, well, we, uh, in our class, we got to dissect frogs. In my group, we, got, we won the bullfrog. How my group won the bullfrog, the bullfrog was the big frog. Of, and, and, the, and so as we're cutting this frog open, we, we found a couple of things. And the most interesting thing we found was another frog inside its stomach. Uh, and so we, were, we got into a big debate. Was that frog there because it was a female frog and it was pregnant? Or, or had it eaten another frog before it died? We, we never could figure it out. And so the whole reason I bring that up is we're going to be dissecting a passage of Scripture this morning in the life of Abraham. And our goal is to answer three questions from his faith to help us understand what saving faith is. And so here's the first question for us. What saved Abraham? What saved Abraham? Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? I guess we should attempt to answer, why would Paul point to Abraham? Uh, for starters, for the Jews, Abraham was the father of their faith. When you, when you read back through the Old Testament, it doesn't take much to determine that because they always say, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they, they start with Abraham. Even getting into John chapter 8, we see that uh, the Jews pointed to Abraham as a reason that they were in right standing with God. And so Paul continues, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, Paul has declared that all of humanity is left without a reason to boast. There's no one that's able to boast because we're all without excuse. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. And what Paul is able to do is to point back to the starting person for their nation. And that starting person is Abraham. This goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. When God tells Abraham to leave his father's land, so what did Abraham do? He left his father's land. When God tells him to go to a land that he's going to show him, what does Abraham do? He goes to the land that he's going to show him. But in that promise, we get Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God declares to him that through him all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham listens to God. He would leave his homeland, which was modern-day Iran, and he would go to the place where God would show him. Pretty soon after that, there's some turmoil Lot gets himself in trouble because of some raiding kings, and so Abraham goes and rescues him. Uh, and uh, after that, Abraham finds himself a little bit depressed. And, and let's pick up in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? As I go on being childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And then this is when we get that most important verse, verse 6, that declares, Then he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? One might argue that Abraham uh, would have said that he had a right standing before God because of his own life. And, and the truth is, is you don't have to do much investigation reading through God's word to, to figure out that that's true or not true. You might remember one of the times that Abraham found himself in, in a land where he and Sarah were there and Sarah apparently being a good looking woman as they're going into that land, Abraham looks over at her and says, hey, Sarah, I got an idea to save my own skin. Why don't we tell them you're my sister, which was a half truth because she was a half sister. Uh, and, so, and so that's what they did. Now, I got thinking about that. Imagine me doing that. April and I going out to dinner somewhere and some guy walking up and said, man, she's a good looking woman. I said, yeah, she sure is. Now go ahead and ask her for her number. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I would never do that. You know, I just, I just never would. A Abraham wasn't righteous based on his own actions. He didn't always tell the truth. He, he was more worried about self-preservation than caring for the well-being of his wife. That's, that's the way I see it. I, I mean, it's just as clear as can be there. But, but what happened here is that he believed God. And, and what was it that Abraham believed? He believed the promise of God. And the promise of God in particular here was that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and it goes back. That promise goes back, like I said, to Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is that scarlet rope that Joel changed my wording from. Uh, going to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is what Abram was believing. He was believing the promise of God here. Verse 6 again, that he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted is significant. It's, it's an accounting term here. It's actually a banking word that's used. Uh, and it's a, it means to impute or to reckon or to count. I it, mean, it's, it's like a credit. It's not something that you earned. It's, it's given to you. It's put into your account. Once again, Abraham wasn't righteous because of himself. He was righteous because he believed God. And what did he believe? He believed that God would keep his word. He would keep his word. See, Abraham was a good dude, but he wasn't a perfect dude. His righteousness came through faith in the promises of God. So verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. This is a basic thought behind every job, right? You get hired to perform a specific task. You perform that task. And in the olden days, who remembers the good old olden days? And when you went to work and the boss walked up to you and actually handed you a check, right? There was something rewarding about getting a check, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, you, you could open it up and see what you got. I, I remember at Simmons Company on Fridays, guys would get their check and they would run to the bank at lunchtime so they could cash it and have cash in their hands. There was something significant about being able to do that. In today's world, you just get direct deposited and they don't even care enough about you to hand you your stub anymore. They email it to you, right? So, but, uh, you know, when you think about that, you don't respond when your boss back then gave your check, put it in your hand. You didn't respond and say, oh, thank you, sir for your gift of graciousness that you've given me. Now, you earn that, right? This is something you earn. Now, you are thankful for your job. That doesn't mean you weren't thankful for your job, but, but you earn that money. This is how many people approach faith and salvation. I do good things, and 
God sees those good things and he gives me my reward. I do religious things and God sees those religious things and, and God gives me righteousness. Here, here's the problem with that mentality. We could do all the good in the world. We could try to do all the good in the world, but the fact is, is that we don't measure up. Maybe we're not casting our spouse off as our brother or sister to save our own hide, but there's other character flaws that each of us have and we know it. There's no one that's going to be able to stand before God and say, God, look at me, how good I am. And God says, well, yes, you're right. Here's your righteousness. No, our righteousness is given to us based upon faith and the promise of God, much like it was Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So when you believe, God imputes, credits, gives your account righteousness. It's not yours. It's not yours. It's God's. I mean, that's that picture that I still understand mentally. I understand it here. I just have a hard time grasping it here at times, that, that God looks at me and knows me and understands me, and yet he still, just because I believe in the promises of his word and I, I follow through with my faith and what it declares for me to do, because I do those things, God gives me righteousness. There's no fair exchange in that at all. It's his righteousness that I'm counting on. And we must remember that Abraham's faith here is not just believing. It's believing that God would do something for him that God promised to do. And the same is true for us. And, and I've tried to drive this point home over the past couple of weeks. It's, it's the object of our faith that saves. It's not our faith. It's not our faith itself. It's that we're trusting in Jesus Christ to do for us that we could never do for ourselves. Uh, the, the fulfill the promise of God's word, to be the propitiation, the covering of our sins. And so when we put our faith, our hope, our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God forgives us through his grace and he imputes, he reckons, he counts righteousness on our account. He, he gives it to us. It's his. That's what we stand in. And from this point, for, for his point to be driven home to the Jewish mindset, Paul brought up another hero of faith, and that hero of faith was King David. And you may remember David. He's that enigma for me, right? He's the favored king of Israel. As a matter of fact, a promise was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which that he would have a descendant that would sit upon the throne of David forever. So we know that descendant's not Solomon because he's not there. So that descendant is Jesus, and he became the fulfillment of that. The people of Israel believed that this would be an earthly king, and, and David, he was far from perfect. There was nothing about David and being perfect other than he had a heart after God's own heart. And we reasoned last year that the reason he had a heart after God's own heart is that when he sinned, he repented. Right? He understood what sin was. He repented. He was an adulterer, a murderer, a man filled with pride, and yet God would forgive him. I love Psalm 32, I read it in my devotional reading this week. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of, uh, it's quoted here in Romans, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Just sometime, take some time to think through those words. From the standpoint of David, 
right? I don't know the exact time frame that he wrote these words, but I know David's life from reading and studying it. Not only was he an adulterer, a murderer, he, he was also a man filled with pride. He was also a man that at one point became so angry that he told all of his soldiers, hey guys, strap it up, we're going. We're going to that wicked fool Nabal and we're going to kill every male in his household and we're going to wipe him off the face of the earth. And if it wouldn't have been for Abigail, that would have been another sin on his account. So when David says these words like, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, he knew what he was talking about. He knew his own sin and the struggles that he had and he understood for sure and certain that his righteousness came as a gift from God. Friends, What was true of Abraham, what was true of David is true for us as well. So like Abraham, we're saved at faith. So that leads to our next question. What was Abraham, when was Abraham declared righteous? When was he declared righteous? It seems like a rhetorical question to ask, right? What was it faith? He was declared righteous at faith. That moment he he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's look at Romans 4, 9 through 12. Therefore, is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be counted to them And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Follow me here for a few moments. And uh, so if you want me to email this list to you later, I will. And and I know I tend to talk fast as I'm going through stuff, so I'm going to try to slow down as we're going through this list here for a moment. But follow me. Before circumcision, there was no classification of Jew or Gentile. It wasn't there. In fact, Genesis 6 through 8 tell of a worldwide flood that destroys all of humanity except eight people. Noah, his wife, and their three sons with their wives. Then we get to Genesis 9 and 10. Noah's sons and their wives are told to repopulate the world. We get to Genesis chapter 11 uh, through uh, 1 through 26, and this is Abram, the son of Terah from the line of Shem, resides in what's known as modern-day Iran. Genesis 12, 1 through 8, this is where God calls Abraham to leave his father's country, and Abraham leaves. Genesis 12, 9 uh, 14, through 14, 24, Abraham, he sojourns in Canaan, Egypt, and the Negev, meaning he's traveling through, waiting to get to that promised place. Genesis 15, uh, the promise uh, of a seed was given to Abraham. And verse 6 declares that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. And then when you get to Genesis 16, Ishmael is born to Abraham through Hagar. Verse 15 lets us know that Abraham was 86 years old at this point. We can infer that Abraham was 85 years old when he was given the promise back in Genesis 15, uh, verses 4 through 6, uh, indicate that this is when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. In Genesis 17, this is when circumcision comes in. So, and it was declared that Abraham was 99 years old. So if Abraham was 85 years old, uh, when he was given the promise and counted his righteousness uh, as righteous, then he obeyed the command of circumcision 14 years later. Uh, And so it's not the act of circumcision that made him righteous. It's not, but... 
there's still a piece of that that we have to grasp and understand. So Exodus chapter 20 tells us that the law was given 430 years after the promise. What was the promise? That Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Galatians 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. And what I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by the promise. But God has granted it to Abraham through the promise. You see, Abraham, he was circumcised 14 years after being declared righteous. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe in the promises of God. Friends, I know that was a lot. But it's important uh, for, for us to understand that Abraham was declared righteous through his faith, not through his religious expressions. So we got one more question to answer. What were the elements of Abraham's saving faith? Romans 4, 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no trespass. What, what Paul has been declaring here is that with God, it's always been by grace through faith. It's always been by grace through faith. This is one of the struggles and challenges. And so when, when we talk about dispensations of time and how God deals with people, the truth is, is when you look at each dispensation, no matter how you look at it, it's always through grace. Always through grace that God deals with people. So uh, you can't point to the law of Moses as a means of earning salvation. You can't point to being a child of Abraham as a means of salvation. What you want, the only thing you can point to is your faith. And so what are the elements of saving faith? Paul is going to give an example of Abraham's faith, and he goes back to Genesis chapter 15. Remember, Abraham's a bit frustrated when he's given this promise by God that the world would be blessed through his seed, and now he's childless, and he's nearing the point of death. This is what he's thinking in his own mind, right? So, uh, I mean, just think about that. I mean, April and I are 51, so we're, we're next to death. So, <laughs> figuring, that, figuring that out. So, in all seriousness, I know people who are 50 and 51 have children, but that would be a nightmare. So that would be a nightmare at this point in life, right? And next to, next to that, it would be virtually, I mean, not virtually, it is impossible. Uh, April and I have often joked, like, I mean, if somehow a child shows up, I mean, there's either a miracle that's taking place or one of us are hiring a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, I mean, it's a reality of that. So, I mean, this is, uh, there, this is the portion of this that, that I think just blows my mind because, one, it gives us something to laugh at a little bit, but also to see clearly a picture of what saving faith is with a weird example Romans 4 16 and 17 for this reason it is by faith in order to that it may be according to grace that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also the, who are those of the faith of Abraham who was the father of us all as it is written 
a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And, And so we don't have time to flip back to Genesis chapter 17 and 18 and read the account of God's visit to Abraham or Abram and Sarah But even that is filled with some chuckles. That's where God shows up and says, hey, I'm going to visit you about a year from now, and I'm going to give you a a child. And and Sarah hears this from the tent, and she laughs. And and the angel of the Lord says, why is Sarah laughing? And she says, I'm not laughing. And the Lord says, yeah, you are. And she says, no, I'm not. And she says, yeah, you are. And so it's like that picture of a parent seeing a child do something they claim that they hadn't done. Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a son? Romans 4, 18 through 22. In hope against hope, he believed. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated it his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God would, uh, had promised he would, was also able to do. Therefore, it was also counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was given a promise, and it appears that life would roll by before that promise would be fulfilled. But God shows up and says, I'm going to fulfill that promise. And now we get to the PG-13 portion of this message. Did you see what the text said? I mean, what were Abraham and Sarah going to have to do to produce a child? I don't have to answer that question. We're we're all adults in here, we know. And the text says that Abraham did not waver in his unbelief that God made a promise and that him and Sarah, they produced a child. They produced that child. And this leads to a much larger question about saving faith. I've been declaring this morning, I've been declaring not just this morning, but at other times, I've been declaring that we are saved by faith through grace, that we put our faith in the grace of God. It's primarily God's grace. And then our faith on top of that, where we're believing the promises of God. So the final question that I want to answer this morning is then what does saving faith look like? Is saving faith merely believing things? I think every turn we get to when we look in God's word, faith is much more than just believing things. And Abraham is a perfect example of that reality. Just go back through his life. God shows up and tells Abraham, I want you to go. What did Abraham do? He got up and went. God tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. What does Abraham and Sarah do? They produce a child. A few chapters later, God shows up again and he tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take this child that I promised you and I want you to take him to a hill that I'm going to show you and I want you to sacrifice him on that hill. And so what does Abraham do? He wakes up the next morning. He wakes Isaac up. He gets the servants up. I contend that he left Sarah asleep because she wouldn't have let him leave. And they make their way to that mountain. And when they get to the mountain, he looks at the mountain and he says these words, stay to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Did you hear that? 
he was going there to sacrifice Isaac. And he says, we're going to go worship and we're going to return to you. The writer of Hebrews lets us know that Abraham reasoned in his mind this, God promised that it was through this seed that the world would be blessed. If he tells me to sacrifice him, then God's going to raise him from the dead. Well, spoiler alert, if you haven't gotten there yet in God's word, he doesn't sacrifice him. It was a test. But once again, his faith is shown in the promises of God and his action shows his faith. Here's the point. Faith is what saved Abraham, but faith is always accompanied with action. It always is. It's not just what we say we believe here or what we feel here. Faith also has to reach our hands and our feet. It has to impact the way that we live. Faith, you know, there's this false dichotomy in our world today that says faith has nothing to do with works and works has nothing to do with faith. It sounds really super spiritual until you think about it. There's no truth to that. In fact, the writer of James, the brother of Jesus, he says these words. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? You can read the rest of it this week. The rhetorical question proves the point. That's not a saving faith at all. So we've allowed our systematic theologies to come in and complicate what should be a simple faith. Faith and works are always tied together. Always. Always. We show our faith by what we do. Right? And so let me finish up this message just with, I, I guess, the obvious illustration of this fact because some people will always try to take circumcision and, and put that with baptism and say, much like circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's faith, baptism has nothing to do with ours. And, and that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth because baptism is commanded from God's word. It is. So I've asked the question in this series already, right? Are, are we saved at faith or are we saved at baptism? Does baptism have anything to do with our salvation? I spent eight years serving as a preacher in Baptist churches because of my struggle with that question, never leaving or, or denying the efficacy of baptism, but always having that question. What if somebody doesn't grasp it? I mean, can God's grace save those who don't fully understand? And, and I came to this realization, that's not my question to answer. It's not mine, it's God's i got to be faithful to what God's word teaches and, and shares. Right? And I've learned in that eight years that we're largely separated by pride and semantics. Before Jesus started his earthly ministry, do you remember what happened with him? He showed up with John the Baptist who was baptizing, and he showed up there to be baptized, and John the Baptist declares, no, I can't baptize you. And then, and then Jesus, well, Matthew 3.15, permitted at this time for in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So did Jesus need to fulfill all righteousness because of the sin in his life? No. And I'll be the first one to tell you as I stand up here that I don't fully grasp everything that this means. I do understand that Jesus said that something in his baptism would fulfill all righteousness, and he went through with it. There's the Great Commission, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to keep all of the com I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, all authority, go make, make disciples. And how? Baptize and teach. Peter preached his first sermon after the commission was given and, and, and they asked, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Peter's response, nothing. 
Just do nothing but believe. Is that what he said? No, he said, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and on that road, right, he was uh, blinded after meeting Jesus. He was led to Damascus where he was there praying and fasting for three days. Ananias was sent to declare the gospel message to Paul, and when Ananias gets there, what did Ananias say? Now why do you delay? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Cornelius and his household responded to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Peter was preaching to them, and in preaching to them, right, the Holy Spirit fell down upon them, and they began to speak in tongues, and from that standpoint on, what happened? Peter said, can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for a few days. Account after account in the book of Acts we would hear and see people respond to the gospel in this way. The Ethiopian eunuch, Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer. So I will maintain this reality. A person is saved by grace through faith. But friends, you can't erase or subtract baptism as a response of faith from the New Testament. You can't. Does the Bible say we're saved at faith? Yes. Does the Bible say we're saved at baptism? Yes. These two truths don't have to be mutually exclusive. They're not, right? What many have done is we've made baptism a work. We've made a baptism a work. It's not a work of salvation. It's a work of faith. It's a work of faith. So let me ask you, friends. By definition, what's a work? What's a work? It's something you do, right? That's what a work is. It's something that you do. So who believes you do who repents you do who confesses Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life you do there's no one in all of Christianity that denies belief confession and repentance are part of salvation but there's a huge section of Christianity that removes baptism away from faith and calls it a work how is baptism more of a work and belief, confession, and repentance. It's not. It's not. And this wasn't a a question until Aldrich Zwingli in the 1500s came about and wanted to remove Christianity away from the the fallacies and some of the uh, doctrinal errors of the Catholic Church. But what he did is he threw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater in his ideas. So when you hear the gospel, when you believe, you're saved by grace through faith, and we show that by obeying the commands of God's word. Nobody denies belief. Nobody denies repentance. Nobody denies confession. Why do we deny baptism? Why do we do it? So when should you get baptized? When you believe. And this just points back to Abraham. When was Abraham saved? When he believed God. When did Abraham obey the commands of God? When he was given those commands. There was no delay. There was no delay any time. At each occasion when God showed up in Abraham's life and he said, do this, Abraham did that. Delayed obedience is always current disobedience. So uh, just so we're aware, belief, repentance, confession, and baptism, they're all only the start of our obedience to Christ. It's the start. Sometime this week, read through Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and give an honest assessment about where you're at in your faith. Are you committed to the apostles' doctrine? Are you committed to worship? Are you committed to fellowship? Are you committed to prayer? 
And so uh, this is that illustration to kind of show us what saving faith is. Friends, saving faith is always tied to our obedience to the commands of what this book says. When it's declared, we obey it. We obey it. I love the way that Romans chapter 4 ends. I read them before the message. Let me read them again. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be counted as those who believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. You see what Paul's clearly declaring there. He says, friends, Abraham is more than just the father of our faith. He's our example worth following. That we believe. And it gets credit to us as righteousness. But remember, our belief is always tied to our actions. So that's the picture of what Abraham, our father Abraham, shows us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the example that we have in Abraham. Thank you for your word that's preserved it for us, that gives us the clear picture and an understanding that Abraham was saved by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness when he believed. And his righteousness, Lord, was shown through his acts of obedience to the commands that you gave him throughout. And, and the same is true for each of us. Right? That, that, that we're saved by faith through the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. But our faith is shown as we begin to take those steps of obedience to what you've called us to, Lord. As we begin to chase after the holiness that you've, that, that you've called us to through the, through the Holy Spirit that you've given us in our lives. So Lord, help each of us to see this illustration and this picture of who Abraham is to be a challenge for our own faith and our own walk and our own trust in you. Lord, give each of us the courage to take those steps of obedience that you've called us to. And no matter what it is, Lord, that we carry to our relationship with you through Christ and, and the history that we bring and, the, and everything else uh, that, that's there, when we're challenged for, with the truth of your word and, and steps that we need to take to, to walk in obedience, Lord, give us the, the courage to take those steps, uh, to trust you through just surrendered obedience to you. So, Lord, we thank you for Abraham's example, and we pray that his example becomes our reality. We pray these things in your son's most holy name.